Welcome to Black Lives Texas. We are your hosts. I'm Ricardo Lowe. And I'm Tracy Lowe. And I'll start by clearing this up now. We are not related. Just to get that out the way. <laughs> so now that that's done, let's talk about this podcast series a little bit. So Tracy and I both work at the UT Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis. But most people just call us IUPRA. We both study, analyze, and do research around criminal justice, education, health, housing, income, and wealth. So IUPRA wanted to start a podcast that explored education and school closures in Austin and in Texas at large, but then COVID hit. And this really made us take a step back and think about what we could do with a series like this instead. As we started talking to parents, teachers, colleagues, administrators, and, you know, we just started to realize that the inequities we saw happening in education were only compounded and amplified by this pandemic. So here we are. And in this three-part series, we're going to take a look at how COVID has impacted black and brown communities within the education system. So first up, something I think almost everyone can relate to during this time, and that's stress. Absolutely. If we take it back to April 6th, this is when AISD officially moved from canceled classes to continuous learning. Teachers and staff were expected to find new ways to continue instruction. Parents and students and the school district at large, really, they, they, they were trying to figure out a the best way to communicate with each other about these expectations. And many were just trying to find ways to deal with the new normal. So, of course, you don't have students being able to see their friends. They can't go to libraries or other spaces for additional assistance. And for parents, they have now an added layer of stress. So, for example, how do you work when you can't access child care? How does your child get what they need to learn and thrive? Daily life has completely changed for them. So we sat down with Valerie Stern, who's one of our colleagues at UT, and she's also a parent in the AISD school district. Like, how, how are your babies coping in general uh, to this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I think the 14-year-old, um, she's doing quite well. She has, uh, she's getting a lot more sleep, which she is appreciating. Um, and there's just some of the stress about being in high school or is gone. She's normally would ride a bus two and a half hours a day. Um, there's all the stresses of being in high school, uh, the social drama, which there's less of, and she just has more autonomy over her life right now. So I think I, she's definitely misses her friends and would like to be around people besides her parents and her little sister. But I think she's doing generally really well with, with um, the pandemic so far. Um, the nine-year-old uh, seems a little bit more stressed, she, like, but still she's missing the social interaction a lot more. Um, the other night when I was putting her to bed, I was like, sweetie, how are you doing? And she said, physically or emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, let's go with emotionally. And she said, not good. I just, why, she was, she's grappling, you know, with a bunch of big big thoughts and concepts and she's worried about um people in her life getting the virus she's worried about people dying um mm. and she misses her social interaction so i think she's a little bit more stressed out than the teenager actually so i noticed she talked about um your nine-year-old specifically thinking about people getting the virus and just kind of processing that so how are you talking to your kids about the coronavirus and and their understanding of what's actually going on. To some extent, we're using this um, as a time to bring up, um, you know, issues in our society that we touch on 
sometimes, you know, as a family, but just uh, using this as an opportunity to say, look, this is the reason why we should all have health care. And this is the reason why we should have better social safety nets, because um, we want to take care of each other as a society. I haven't gotten into a ton of the details with the nine-year-old when she's worried about um, death and sickness. Um, like, I try to do two things. One is, like, life is sometimes scary. I don't want to, like, shield her from that. And there is death in life. Um, and uh, that's why we need to try to be present and enjoy every single day that we have with our, our you know, family and connection. So there's that part of it. But then also highlight, you know, that um, there are injustices and uh, we could do better as a society at taking care of each other. Yes, yeah, real, because, you know, I think a lot of people are kind of put in a, in a in a tough position about how to converse this with their children, um, especially depending on their age. Like I have a four year old and a two year old, and of course they're limited in their scope of of how much they can actually learn or know about this. But I, I do try to tell them, you know, the world is sick right now, and we have to be careful from going out. Um, but amidst of all that, I know that every time, if you do this every day, right, because you're working. I know that you are a PhD student. I know that your husband works. And I know that, you know, both of your kids are going to have to do, you know, it looks like online learning probably for the rest of the year. I'm not sure what the fall semester looks like. I wonder what that does to any ordinary parent who might just be getting burnt out from all this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, are you getting burnt out as a, as a parent with all these, it seems like the additional responsibilities that you have to take during this time? So a little bit, but I think I'm a lot luckier than other parents and that I was an elementary school teacher for a decade. Right. So, um, I have that whole history and all of that knowledge uh, to bring, but so that so many other parents don't have an elementary school teaching background. So don't have that context. Um, I did get an email from her teacher like last week saying, you haven't logged on. She's going to get an incomplete. And I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm like, and I, and I had been writing her and saying, she's reading two hours every day. She's practicing her facts. And I thought that was enough. Um, but it wasn't. Um, so, uh, <laughs> wow. so she's now, um, logging on, to um there's Dreambox and iStation and iXL and they're all like online things that I don't really have to help her with and she does that for 30 minutes a day so and uh that's what we're doing we're trying to have like just low moderate expectations and pr prioritize like mental health and getting through the day for sure and so in thinking about having your children set we know that you're a phd student mm -hmm. and that as a student yourself there's some level of expectations that are coming from your professors and so in just thinking about that perspective being a parent can you talk to us about that also sure like the the week of spring break and then the week after spring break i had before all this had happened i was like i'm gonna have so much work to do i have to like really work and then when all this happened i just couldn't like i just couldn't focus um for a couple of weeks and um I just gave myself that I was like you know what we're in a worldwide pandemic I cannot stress myself out right now and just try to like transition into this routine um and then since then 
I've basically had to work nine to five every day. Um, and I'm not as efficient. So I feel like I have even less time than I would if this wasn't going on. Cause it's taking me longer to be productive. So my kids are just getting less of me in some ways, even though we're all in the house together than they would have before this. Um, but I'm, this is the last week. I'm just, I'm turning in everything this week. So woo woo. Yay. So there, I'm, me too. yes, congrats. Yay. Congratulations. <laughs> so Valerie and her family, even with having access to communications and being parents that work from home, they found that they have struggles and stressors also, and they're trying to make this new system work for them. Seniors, on the other hand, are missing out on some really big milestones like prom, graduation, and just other celebrations in general. Some students and family like Valerie's have adopted seniors to send them care packages just to make this year extra special for them. So speaking of senior year, did you go to prom, Ricky? I did. I did. And I remember it. So so really, I, I didn't go to prom in 11th grade. I only went senior year. And I feel like it's pertinent to mention that because it was my... It was in a way it was like a milestone. It was a way to say that, you know, I finished my four year experience at high school um, and I just really wanted to to party with my friends. And that's what the prom is, really. Right. And so I remember that. I remember going there and um, just having fun, you know, just worry free because we were all going to walk the stage weeks later. And I can't imagine that experience being taken away from me, um, especially when you have no control over it right um I remember one of my fondest uh, experiences is is wanting to drive to prom but my license wouldn't it didn't come like until like two days after prom so I had to have my girlfriend drive me and um <laughs> she she had a license back then and um I just think about those small little things and um how influential they are you know to to someone who is just trying to navigate through high school and get prepared for the next journey in life I just really was mad that I wanted, I really wanted to have my license in hand and it wasn't coming until two days after prom and I couldn't, my dad would not let me drive the car. I was like, it's coming like two days afterwards. And he had like a Lincoln Town car, really wanted to drive it, but I couldn't. So I was like, dang. I, mm, so you couldn't stun on I him, couldn't huh? stun on nobody, but I sh- I, I'm not even, okay. that's, more, that's me worried more about my ego than the prom, but still it's attached to the prom. <laughs> Well, I got to stunt because I got to go to Papados for my prom. Wow, we went to IHOP. <laughs> but it was kind of, you went to IHOP, so that's <laughs> yeah. cool. But my date was sick, so uh, we went. He had a cold, and it was cool, but we left early. Also, I'm like an introvert and a homebody, so I love prom, but I was also okay with leaving early. So prom was great. <laughs> Definitely don't know where the pictures are right now. Probably hit them. But it was cool, and it was really a milestone experience because that was one of the last times that I was going to be able to be with friends and frenemies mm. and all of those other, like, high school drama situations that you have going on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, sure, I sure do remember those days. Now I'm reminiscing like an old man. All right, so that's enough prom talk for now. Let's get back on topic. We know that schools look different for students across AISD. The stress of this pandemic makes things different for every family. Not all schools have the same resources. Some schools were even slated to close. And there are all these new protocols that look completely different for students with disabilities. 
So students in special education often require more one-on-one time and just other things to make learning more accessible for them. Parent and advocate Lisa Flores is very familiar with how to work within the system where things are quote-unquote normal, but this is a whole new situation during this pandemic. You know, when I first started doing work around school closures in Austin, I was going to a lot of community events, and I was trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, Among the many parents who were there almost at every single meeting was Lisa. She was there. She was very active. And she was also, you know, curious about what was going on with these school closures and how they were going to impact her kids. I wanted to check in with Lisa to see how she and her husband, Mike, and their kids were doing. How were they coping with COVID? I have two sons. One is 13 and the other is eight. And they're coping very differently. It's very interesting. My older kiddo is a person with a disability. And because of his disability, like, this is sort of normal to him. He's very socially isolated. Um, It's been very painful for me to see how isolated he really is. Like, I knew he was isolated, but seeing, seeing it in my home, like, right in my face has really accentuated the level of isolation. Like, I... um. Let me put it to you this way. He, he doesn't have any friends. Like, nobody has reached out to him. Nobody has expressed interest in, like, touching bases or playing games with him. Or he's he literally has just sort of been a peripheral, peripheral member of his class. My other kiddo is sort of thrilled, um, <laughs> which was an unexpected, you know, I thought that he would get sick of it, but he genuinely likes sort of staying at home in his underwear, hanging out. Um, he is able to play um, online games with his friends and talk to them and stay connected through Messenger and gets lots of invites. So I have one very connected, very social kiddo and one that is totally isolated. So their experiences are very different. I have to say I'm incredibly proud of both of them. They have been wonderfully adaptive and flexible. And I know that sometimes it gets to them and they don't want to do what I'm asking them to do. But they have been, I'm so very proud of each of them in their flexibility and ability to adapt. You know, um, I have really taken on teaching them community living skills that, you know, skills that we didn't have time for in the past. I've also taught both of them how to make the perfect crispy quesadillas. (laughs) For real, they can make it like you So when's lunch? (laughs) (laughs) It's a skill, man. I have a follow-up question. Yes. That's, that sounds really good. I had a follow-up question when you were specifically talking about your your child with disabilities and the social, social isolation. Have teachers been reaching out, or is it just other students and other connections so, that have kind of... So I think that this experience really highlights sort of... I don't think that my son's experience is the only one I've heard from other parents that their kiddos with, you know, any sort of social dis, social communication disability is, is sort of in the same boat, and... I think that that our experience mirrors what happens at school in that frequently students with disabilities are sort of um, relegated to special education teachers and special education people. There's a real disconnect. Um, I I think that schools that are doing inclusion, and I mean inclusion, disability-specific inclusion, is going to be very obvious right now if your principal has an inclusive mindset, if your teachers have an inclusive mindset. If that student is just another member of the class that everybody supports and understands, 
that will come out. And if they aren't, that will come out. So he, he is sort of more relegated to the special education teacher um, for connection rather than the general education teacher because they are not as comfortable with him and um, have other, you know, the, the, the logic I've always heard from them or what has been expressed from them, which I want to give validity to, and I'm not saying this with judgment, is that, you know, they don't have a lot of experience with kids like him. And I, I don't feel like they necessarily feel empowered to support him. And, um, but he is one of their students. So as a parent, I'm challenging them to take accountability and ownership of this student, even if it is outside of their comfort zone, because he's one of theirs. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but the, the experience that we've had mirrors experience at school and that he's just being relegated by special, special. You know what I mean? Lisa is an advocate not only for a child, but also for other parents who need assistance navigating the system, a system she considers flawed from the start and has only since been compounded by COVID-19. The way that Texas funds special education is based on placement. So the more segregated you get, the more money you get. And those weights haven't changed in almost 30 years. So placement and where you learn has erroneously become synonymous with special education. Special education has become a place, and it should never be a place. It's just a series of services and supports. But when we prepare teachers, they still have a choice between general ed and special ed, right? Well, those classrooms don't exist anymore. Um, Teachers will have a student with a disability in their class or multiple at some point in their careers. I really wish that we could move away from that dichotomy, just move into inclusive education that is just education, that teachers feel empowered to really help all their students. Because really, just from a practical standpoint, if you're empowered and know strategies to choose learners that can be more challenging, you catch a wider net of students, right? And, and I just wish that by default, all teachers were, ju- were special education teachers just working on that mindset I've described instead of that dichotomy, because it really does create a lot of, a lot of acceptance barriers for students. People do have a lot of implicit biases and prejudice that they may not even be aware of, you know? Um, so it's sort of my job year, year after year, I get new teachers And a year after year, I have to get buy-in from those teachers to cheer for and root for my son and support him. I always say that I have to work 10 times harder for what everyone else takes for granted. Yeah. So it sounds like what I hear you saying is there's some policy issues that that need to come out in terms of thinking about special education students that were present even before COVID happened and just thinking about at least how teachers are tracked, how they're trained, how principals think about inclusion and just even funding just to understand the fact that the more segregated or like removed these students are from what they say is a regular classroom, the, the more funding. And I'm pretty sure that has implications for principals who are looking for funding for their districts. So it sounds like there's... Of course. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of policy implications that are going on here. So thank you for expressing that. 
So with all of that already in place during a normal school year, how is Lisa handling learning from home during COVID? It's been a really, a, a really big challenge. Um, if I was worth my salt as a teacher, my son wouldn't be so behind academically. Um, I, I have nothing but respect for teachers. It's very difficult. So that divide I've supplemented by, it would be like there's weekly check-in Zooms for the general ed class. And I, instead of obligating my son, I have given him the option, like, do you want to check in with your class? So it's his preference. He may or may not want to. And some weeks he has and some weeks he has not. And it's been interesting to support Zoom in the context of disability and connection. Um, his particular disability affects his ability to know how to interact uh, appropriately. So you can imagine, like, let's all pretend we're him for a minute. You don't know who to attend to on the, on the screen. You don't know when it's appropriate for you to speak. You don't know who is speaking to you. And you're trying to, to work through all those things to participate and find connection with other people. So some days he's up for that. And some days he, it's just too frustrating for him because there is such a learning curve. To, to, there's like base skills that he has to get before he's able to really connect with people. And I had not anticipated that aspect that, you know, like it's natural for me to know who to attend to even virtually, but it's not natural for him. And it's not natural for him to know when it's appropriate for him to interject or speak. So I have been teaching those soft Zoom skills to try to compensate. And I've also been giving my son a lot of options as, as to like self-guided learning um, instead of relying on posted lessons that um, are not um, aimed towards him or individualized for him and he's not at a level where he can learn them. So instead of, honestly, instead of just concentrating on the lessons that others, uh, his other classmates are doing, I've really opted to just do self-guided lessons and follow his interests and, and supplement like that. He's really into volcanoes right now, like big time. So he's done a lot of self-guided learning around volcanoes. And a friend of mine sent me an article that somebody posed to a professional, a rhetorical question, if lava could kill the coronavirus. And the answer was yes. And I shared that article with him. He was completely thrilled that lava could decimate COVID-19. So we've been doing a lot of naturalistic learning in that sense that isn't necessarily like what has been uploaded to Google Classroom. So Lisa and her family also have the added stress of having a parent in the home who's deemed an essential worker meaning they have to leave their house to do their job every day. And this just really adds even more stress to what they're already feeling. So it sounds like you as a parent are taking on a lot of things and you're adjusting in a lot of ways. So as a parent, and you talked a little bit about how you're feeling, but there is also a focus on the kids and thinking about their trauma. But in terms of parent support, how are you coping with this? You know, it, I feel so I'm a very extroverted person. Um, the majority of my friends are introverts. Actually, probably all of my friends are introverts. I love introverts. So it's hard for me being the one that checks on people to not be checked on. You know what I mean? It's done bad things to my head. Like, do I really have friends? Do they really care about me? Um, and... I have opted to, like, 
mentally put a break on those types of unproductive, hurtful feelings and just, I have opted to choose that to, to have empathy and meet people where they are because everybody is trying to cope in their own way, right? Somebody not having the bandwidth to connect with me does not mean that they don't love me. But, but I think when you are on your own so long, you start getting, you start getting irrational, right? About social lassos and in your head, I don't know, has that happened to y'all? Yeah, I've had that. I've had to be like, just because my friend isn't texting me, that doesn't mean that they don't want to talk to me. They just have other things going on. So yes, I relate. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I've gone through a couple of different stages. At first I was, um, so my job is to empower other parents through advocacy. My job is an advocacy specialist. I help other parents like learn to maneuver systems. So my first when this first hit, I was like, oh, I'm not productive. I'm not being helpful. And I mourned my ability to, to help others. And then I went from being stressed about being productive to like not being able to do anything to just feeling blocked and paralyzed. You know what I mean? Like I oscillate between those two poles of being like, I'm going to take over the world and eh, I'm just going to watch another episode. What for? And I think that's a, just an honest feeling. Um, and I do have weekly check-ins on social media with my friends. And it's been really interesting because instead of it being like um, Pinterest puppies and glitter and look at this beautiful thing I made and everything being perfect, people are like, I'm being honest. So it's giving room to, for other people to be honest. Like, Hey, I'm feeling like this. Are you feeling like that? So it's been nice to have those weekly check-ins just to not, um, to not be in a vacuum in my own head and, and, understand that I'm not alone and these feelings are not weird. I feel for Lisa. All of these different stressors add up and sometimes you just need to take a step back and see what you can do to help or at least find a distraction. As we record this, the school year is wrapping up and we're moving into the summer. And as of right now, we don't know what the virus is going to look like in the fall. We do know that school cannot go back to what it was before the virus. So what might the 2021 school year look like? Let's check in with Dr. Stephanie Holly, the equity officer for Austin Independent School District. Yeah, we just wanted to touch base with you about what's going on a little bit. You know, um, I know that we are in trying times with this COVID-19 crisis. And I always say that you have like the hardest job in America right now is the equity officer for AISD. Um, I think really we know that there is a crisis on top of a crisis here. Because before COVID-19, we had the issue of school closures. Right now, AISD is in the process of searching for another superintendent. But given these unexpected circumstances that come with COVID-19 as well, can you speak about how the students are coping in general and just speak a little bit about their mental health at this time? Yes. So um, first of all, let me say, I don't have the most difficult job in America right now. There are a lot of other people that have more difficult jobs. And um, I just want to, you know, do a shout out to all the teachers, um, those that are raising children and teaching their children and also teaching uh, their classes, right? So I think that's one of the most difficult jobs in America right now is to be a teacher with children and trying to teach. I think that that's a challenge, but um, yeah, there's a lot going on and we've had the opportunity to talk to 
and listen to a few students. We're trying, right now my office is in the process of organizing a student forum so we can hear from some of our students from marginalized groups. But what we're hearing so far, um, uh, I happen to also, uh, my husband of 39 years is also a, a retired chemist and a teacher at Eastside Memorial. So I get to hear some of what some of our students are experiencing from that end as well. And, and so we've got some students that, of course, everybody always talks about the resilience and grit. And there are many students that we have that have been through a lot in their lives. And this is certainly problematic. And so it, it just varies from student to student, depending on what their prior experience was prior to this, uh, to, to COVID. Uh, we've heard about students that are uh, are being very creative. As a matter of fact, I just left a, a phone conference where I learned about a young, uh, uh, I'm going to call her a young lady, third grader, who uh, it was doing all of her work on a cell phone, all of her homework. Uh, and she was frustrated because she was getting behind her peers in class because she really didn't have the device that she needed and so one of my staff members advocated and made sure she got her Chromebook and now she's getting caught up with her class. So there are varying experiences we're hearing from students. There are some students that schoolwork is helping them to stay focused and helping them to stay settled. And then for other students, the challenges of trying to learn while they're, uh, and we've got some students, their parents have lost their jobs or have been furloughed and they're stocking shelves in the grocery stores now because the adults in their world have, have lost their jobs. And so the stories are, the stories are myriad, right? Um, they're all different. And school is helping some people stay focused and school is stressing other people out. Uh, and it depends on the life circumstances. For some of our most marginalized students, um, the stressors of just the day-to-day -day going to get food, right? Uh, we have spaces and places for our students to pick up two meals a day um, with the district. Uh, but when people don't have transportation, you know, our families are stressed out about how do we get the transportation to get to the food, even though it's available. So, you know, the mental health of our students and, and the adults, the caregivers, um, it's varied. I'll just put it that way, Ricky. Varied, um, and uh, and and we're hoping we can come through this thing um, stronger on the other side. Is the hope understanding that some of these issues or these underlying issues were already present within the district? Um, how do you think that the adaptability, the flexibility, that leadership? everyone from down from leadership to students have kind of had to make in terms of dealing with COVID-19. How do you think that that's going to move the district forward in a positive way and be able to strengthen the outcomes for the community as a whole and specifically vulnerable communities? So <laughs> there are a lot of lessons in all of this, right? Um, for all of us. And I've been on a number of webinars and people ask me about, you know, the equity piece. And, and when people are angry and frustrated, they find my office too. And then um, we were talking the other day, sometimes our office gets blamed for not making the district do something. And we have to remind them that what our role is, and you know, our role is, our role has changed, of course, in this, in this situation, but our role, uh, 
before this was to, to help the district build its capacity for equity. And, uh, and so we remind people that food distribution and tech distribution is not equity. It's necessary, it's important, um, it's crucial, but equity would be about changing the systems that create the problems that we're having to, to do emergency teaching, emergency uh, tech distribution, emergency food distribution. And so if we, if we can get to policies and practices uh, that change the system that produces the inequities, you know, that, that's the big piece. And that's what our office is about, is helping leadership development, helping people use the data so they can do better strategic planning. Um, we've, our office has had the, the privilege of coaching some of our senior leaders um, with developing and looking at their plans and their initiatives during this, uh, at this point. We've also developed um, tools for our leadership to use for decision-making, because it's really easy to think, oh, we're doing some really good things for low-income children or our, our uh, bilingual students or our immigrant families. Yes, those things are so crucial. However, they're not equity. And so we try to help people. So uh, one of the tools we put out several weeks ago, and people are using in different states now, we found out, um, was a decision equity decision-making tool to help people get focused. So, you know, asking the question, who's at the table helping to solve a problem? Um, is the solution that we've put out there as decision makers, is it actually working? So you have to collect some data and you have to get the lived experiences of people. Um, and so everybody's in urgent mode, right? Like everybody's urgently trying to meet basic needs. But we also, our office also has to slow people down sometimes and say, is this the best decision? How do you know? Where did the, you get your, you know, there's data and there's data and then there's living data, right? So the equity office, we're about collecting that living data. So every morning we're on community calls. We work with our uh, family support office. We work with our cultural proficiency and inclusiveness office. And so we're finding out about the lived experiences. And then we share that information with uh, decision makers in those different areas, child nutrition. And in some cases, we bring them to the calls to, so they can have a direct conversation with the community. Because early on, we were kind of the middle people. We would get on the call and then we'd have to call child nutrition, IT, academics and SEL, you know, our social emotional people and say, this is what we're hearing, you know, and calling community engagement uh, office and saying, this is what we're hearing, this is a problem. And so eventually we got representatives from those areas to actually get on those phone calls with grassroots organizations. And, you know, certainly the district's on calls with the city and the mayor and, uh, but we, only the equity office at one time was on with the grassroots organization. So now we've helped um, representatives to show up at those meetings so they can directly answer questions and they can hear the questions that are coming from the community directly. And, you know, the equity office of 2.5 people, <laughs> we're not trying to, you know, do the, the fielding, the triage and the relaying of information. So that's something we've seen 
uh, we've seen leaders really step up and have that direct interface with the grassroots organizations. And that's the beginning of equity, right? Relationship building. So it's hard to serve people with whom you don't have a relationship. And uh, so we're seeing, we're seeing change, uh, mindset changes, but we also see people who are jumping the gun and saying, well, what will school look like when we get back? And, and I said, without talking to the people that were most marginalized during the crisis, you'll build another system that doesn't work for marginalized people. And so we're going to have to do a lot of listening. And I think our leaders have, uh, as far as I've seen, Ricky and uh, Tracy, as far as I've seen, uh, people are doing a lot more listening to hear about what the pain, where the pain points are, and then what can we do? So uh, if anything good possibly come from this, this uh, tragedy, quite frankly, is what we have here. I do think we're all learning to listen in a different way. So what will 2021 look like? I don't think we can answer that just yet. And I'm not sure AISD can answer that just yet. But I love what Dr. Holly said about learning to listen in a different way. We have to find ways to make the school system work for all students. So we know COVID and any COVID-related content can be stressful to hear about. So we've decided to try and end each episode with just a little bit of optimism. So we're going to jump back in with Valerie and Lisa to hear how their families are keeping up with the hope and the happiness in their households. So Lisa has been finding ways to enjoy the smaller moments. I know this sounds weird because everybody's complaining, but I have truly enjoyed the opportunity to spend this much time with my with my kids. They're growing up so fast. You know, my older son is almost taller than me. His voice has dropped. He's not my baby anymore. You know, you blink and they're 13 and they have a low voice. So I have truly daily reflected on how much I enjoy having this time with them to just relax and have conversations and have bad food together and play games and talk about Fortnite and just have this time with them. You know, you always think as parents you're going to have an infinite amount of time and it's not infinite. It's finite. So I have really um, kind of been grateful for my time with my boys. And finally, Valerie and her family have learned to love a good routine and are trying to see how this moment in time can hopefully have a larger impact on society. So we've been really trying to be intentional about like uh, having routines within our day that will prioritize our you know, mental and spiritual health. So my husband and I are doing yoga with Adrian every morning, which we are doing anyways, but we're still doing it. And end with our last move is always a hug. It's the last move. It's a good way to start the day. Um, and we do, you know, happy hour with our friends every day at five o'clock, which is just like building, even though we're social distancing, we are social distancing, like building connection and building relationships. We're, um, taking, like the kids are definitely stepping up with lots of responsibilities that we just didn't have time to like implement before. We're playing a lot more games as a family. We're on the weekends, we're going for walks around the neighborhood or bike rides, um, and getting outside, we're connecting more with people who are far away, like uh, uh, in our immediate neighborhood. But then also like if you're going to have a Zoom with friends, you could do it with your friend, like our family that's in Canada or our friends that are lived in England. So we've been connecting with people who are farther away that we didn't necessarily have the time, make the time for. And then um, on a broader um, optimism 
uh, thoughts. I'm like, I'm hoping that this is the thing. This is the impetus to change the trajectory of our society. I feel like it's bit, you know, like, like we've said before, like, um, the systems were built inequitably to, to privilege some and while oppressing others. And I think that that's, that this pandemic has really brought that, um, to the forefront where we can really see that and maybe hopefully make it, um, what's important, like taking care of each other and building community and making sure we all have health care and, and food to eat. Like those are the things that we should prioritize as a society. That's it for this episode. Next week, we'll be taking a look at how food insecurity is affecting the community and how Austin ISD is handling food distribution. Do you want to share your story about how COVID has impacted education in your life? Email Black Lives Texas Podcast at gmail.com and send us a note or a voice memo. We want to hear from you. Black Lives Texas is a podcast by the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin, also known as IUPRA. And it's hosted by me, Tracy Lowe, and my co-host, Ricardo Lowe, and produced and edited by Mariah Gossett with music by Upper Reality. All right, so we will be back next week. Hasta la próxima semana. And I'll just say goodbye. Goodbye.